welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. Um, if you're visiting us, we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, and we've come to chapter 4. I know, it's been a couple of weeks, but we're back in 1 Samuel 4. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, before we even get into there, it's important this week, as we jump into our text, that we kind of do a little bit of a uh, historical backdrop tour of where we're headed this morning. Um, if we didn't, the passage will seem odd. Um, it'll be like watching a movie or a play with no sound or subtitles. If you've ever done that, um, it's a fun thing to try, but it's challenging because you don't understand. And even in moments of tragedy, um, you can be, find yourself laughing because you don't actually understand what's going on. And, and sometimes when we come to some of these passages uh, in these Old Testament books of the Bible, it is so, so, so important that we, we grasp the big picture of what's happening, even in the book and narrative of Scripture, because if we don't, um, we often just come to these stories and you're like, that was weird, okay? And if we did that this morning and didn't kind of give a backdrop of what we're doing this morning, it would kind of come across like that. So um, if you did, if you're a, uh, I'm excited to have you kids in here today. Our elementary age is with us. I love that. Hopefully you got a handout, a sheet this morning. If you didn't and would like one, I'd love for you to get one of those. Just raise your hand and our ushers will make sure you have that. Um, elementary age. <laughs> um, so if you didn't, if you need one, raise your hand. I'm going to invite you to follow along. I'm excited. There's some things for all of us, no matter what age, to learn from this morning. So there's three things we're going to do. Our historical tour is going to take us through understanding the Ark of the Covenant, okay? In the next few weeks, central to our passages of Scripture will be this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Then the second thing we're going to do, we're actually going to finally make it to our passage, which that looks really small, even for me, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. Um, we'll come to that. And then the last thing is we're going to bring those two things together for some practical application for this morning. So overview of the Ark, that's where we're going to start, the Ark of the Covenant, when I say the Ark of the Covenant, what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind when you think of the Ark of the Covenant? There's a couple of things that you might have thought of when you hear the Ark of the Covenant. One, it might just be from your camera. I'm moving over here. Sorry. I'll be right back for you downstairs. But some of you may just come like a flannel graph visual or something from Sunday school. Awesome job. This is why it's awesome like our children's church workers downstairs. They don't just teach the Ark of the Covenant. They make something that looks like it. Um, there was polls to this, but I couldn't find them. Um, so something like a visual of what the actual Ark of the Covenant might come to mind. Um, and I'm going to invite you in just a second, kids, to, to sketch that, but ignore that for a second. When we read Exodus chapter 25, I want you to take what you're reading and sketch what you think the Ark of the Covenant would look like. So that's something a visual might come to mind. So another thing that might come to mind um, is just the mystery like, of what the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, there are still people... When the Ark of the Covenant disappeared, when the Babylonian Empire took over Israel, there's still people that start, on that day, they started searching for where the Ark of the Covenant went, nobody knows, and there's still people searching today. And if you just type into Google Ark of the Covenant, the first articles that are going to hit you is not biblical text. It's going to be the latest um, digging operations in some foreign country or on some mountain where there's a group of scientists who say, we think we know where the Ark of the Covenant is. 
And so that's like, there's this mystery that shrouds um, this object in the Old Testament. The last thing that might come to mind is Harrison Ford, okay? You guys know why? Yeah, the first movie, okay? Um, the, the Adventures of the Lost Ark, right? Anybody movie gurus know what year that movie came out? Any guesses? Just yell it out. 83, 81, close, okay? So 81 was the year, and you kind of can picture um, Harrison Ford there with his gear and like the whole, good movie. The crazy part is you can go today at 1230 to the movie tavern in Exton and watch that movie. That's the sign of a really popular movie when 30 years later, you can be like, hey, what are we doing today on Mother's Day? Let's go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? Like that's a popular, but the problem is, when you start thinking of the Ark of the Covenant, either in that, that mysterious or you limit it to a Bible story, um, or you think of it in the Hollywood version of the Ark of the Covenant, you begin to miss the power and just how important the Ark of the Covenant is to the biblical text. It speaks so much truth into our understanding of the broad range of Scripture, but it also, in very, very real ways, helps us in our theology in the New Testament. When we understand some basic things about the Ark, it does that. And so the term in Hebrew that is used over 200 times in the Old Testament is chest or container, which is a good name for it because it was a container. Um, and so that's what it did. It carried certain specific things, which we'll talk about in a second. And so in it, over the next couple weeks, I mean, especially the next two weeks to come, the ark is going to be so central that we need to understand some of these things. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Um, I don't know why I'm in the movie theme today, but let's go back. Turn with me to Exodus 25 before we even get to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, we are going to be in Exodus 25, 10 to 22, and we're going to see this Ark of the Covenant. Where did it come from and why is it so central? So as you're turning there, Genesis, Exodus chapter 25. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. The Ark of the Covenant. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. You can still get things with acacia wood. You can go to Lowe's and get flooring made out of acacia wood. This is what they very detailed as we get into this. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make it on molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Verse 15, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. We're in trouble today. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony that I, God speaking, I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Verse 21, and this is where I want us to pay attention because we're going to come back to this later. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in the commandment of the people of Israel. So what do we learn from these verses and why take the time to read these? It's very important because what we can take away from these verses is very simply this. God designed the ark. It was his idea, and he was so specific about how we wanted it to look that he gave detailed instructions on putting it together. Now, later, they're going to have their two finest carpenters um, put this together in the, in the preceding passages as they're putting together the tabernacle. So we learn what it actually looks like, and actually in great detail. Uh, just for size, in modern language, that would have been 3.9 feet by 2.3 feet, which is really not that big. If you think about it, I, I always pictured the Ark of the Covenant like this monster thing, but it really wasn't that big. But more importantly from this, we kind of learn the Ark's purpose. Um, and this is what it was. The Ark was a constant reminder to the people of Israel of God's covenant with Israel, or God's covenant with Abraham, which was to all the people of Israel. It was a constant reminder when they saw, when they, when they saw it or when they knew on certain holidays and festivals the high priest was going into it, they knew that it was a sign of God's covenant with them. And it did this in two ways, okay? The first was that it was a sign of God's faithfulness in the past, what he had done, okay? And the next thing it did is it was a, a sign and a promise of God's covenant and his presence with them like right now. So there was the past and then right now were the two areas that the ark represented in its covenant. So three things. God's past faithfulness was seen in its contents or what was actually inside, okay? And isn't that like, like what was actually like the purpose of it? What was it carrying? And so there was three things that it carried. It carried first two unbroken stone tablets of the law. If you notice, what did Moses do with the first set? He broke them. It's nice. God gave him another set. Here you go. Take these two and put them in here as a remembrance of my faithfulness. The second thing was Moses also put in a golden jar of what? Manna. Okay? As a picture and sign of God's faithfulness as well. Like that manna fell from heaven every day and the people of Israel, as they were walking through the wilderness, had something to eat. So a golden jar of manna. Lastly, God also commanded Moses, this is all happening in the very beginning at Mount Sinai, Moses is having a one-on-one with God. As he's establishing his law and he's establishing his nation, he's telling him, this is what I want you to do. The third thing that they put in is Aaron's rod. So Moses, Aaron's brother, yes, Aaron had a rod. He says, put the rod in there. And something that God did was the rod actually... Um, budded, and there was a flower on the end of it. And this was a sign of God's rebellion to remember, hey, do not rebel against me. Okay, so we see the, the Ark of the Covenant, the purpose for it was that it was a symbol of God's covenant with Abraham. And, and one thing that it did was it showed his faithfulness in the past. Listen, this is what I've brought you out of, and this is why this is important. The contents matter. The second thing is God's presence in the now was seen in its actual function. Um, and so those last three verses... Um, in Exodus 25, if you're still there, it says, all right, so, so what was the purpose of this thing? And you shall put a mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. And then this is what he says, this is where I'm going to meet with you. Okay, what a cool picture. So God, God's like, listen, we're, we're establishing this relationship. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to come down and meet with you. But not everyone can just look at God because that, that's instant death. So I'm going to meet here in this room of Holy of Holies, and I'm going to interact and commune with you as a people. And the high priest, 
on the Day of Atonement, which in modern-day language is Yom Kippur. That's when the Jewish people still celebrate, okay, the, a Day of Atonement when, someone, when God would descend and the high priest would atone for all the sins. You see that he's like, I'm here with you now. His presence is there. That was a function of the Ark of the Covenant. The other function of it was, I want you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. We're doing our quick whirlwind tour. Joshua chapter 3. Another function of the ark was that it manifested God's power. And so you see here in Joshua chapter 3, Moses is gone. Joshua is now leading the people. And I want to just read starting in verse 10. You guys ever, like, you ever go to a game? Sorry, look up. Um, you ever, like, go to any, any type of sporting event? Um, what is the, like, before the team runs out of the tunnel? What, what runs out before them and stands in the middle of whatever and does its thing? Anybody know? Ah, oh, shoot, that wasn't the answer I wanted. Yes. Okay, no, no, no. The mascot. But what is the mascot usually doing? It's doing something very specific. Waving the flag of the team. It's saying, hey, before the team runs out, I'm coming out with the flag. I'm going to wave the flag in the middle of the field, get everybody pumped up to say, this is the team that's coming. This was kind of what's happening the Ark of the Covenant was like the flag for the people of Israel that said, hey, we are coming. We're waving the Ark of the Covenant. It's before us. This is the power. Watch out. Here we come. And so we see in Joshua chapter 3, starting in verse 10, and Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, without fail, drive them out before you. All the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, um, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And so if you know the rest of the story, first of all, I always think like it would have been amazing to watch that happen, but it would have been even weirder for the people upstream. Because <laughs> think about that. They're like, they don't get what's going on, but they're like, all of a sudden, the water just stopped. Like, how did that even happen? Why is that going on? At least if you were in the moment marching behind the ark, they step on a dry land and all you can say is, whoa. And not only was it just land, it was dry land. Instantly, a big river stopped. And what was leading the way? The Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the men who carried the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the water, boom, instant dry land, march into the land of Canaan, and then is the next step in Israel's journey. So we see here the importance, and imagine just the stories. I mean, like, I don't know if you have grandparents who, who are good at telling stories. I have a grandfather who just tells stories, and they never stop. Every time I'm with them, the story changes, but it's, like, even better, so I don't say anything. Like, this was different than last time because the stories just get better. Um, but, like, imagine the stories that were being able to be told about what God did. But remember, we're about 12 generations past now where we are in 1 Samuel, and everyone's forgotten. Or it's become just a fairy tale that, ah, yeah, great-great-grandfather used to tell us that story. And it's, it's a forgotten memory. 
So the next area, let's just hit on as we finish this quickly, the travels of the ark, okay? And I put up, uh, I got a map here. I don't even know if you'll be able to see it, so if not, I apologize if you can't. Um, There's supposed to be a map that comes up here at some point, Um, but I just want to walk through. Once the children of Israel entered the land of Canaan, the Jordan River, which we just talked about, they set up memorial stones at Gilgal near where Abraham had erected his first altar. The tabernacle was set up at Gilgal, and Joshua set up the headquarters there. The conquest of Canaan lasted seven years, and the ark was with the Israelites. In the conquering of Jericho, the Israelites marched around the city with the ark, leading them, and after seven times, the wall fell. While they were conquering the land, um, the tabernacle was moved to a more central location at Shiloh. Joshua and the Israelites divided the land of Canaan among the 12 tribes and settled in the land. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant remained at Shiloh for 300 years. It was while the Ark was at Shiloh that Samuel, enter our time in our passage today, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord by his mother Hannah, and he was raised by the priest named Eli, a descendant of Aaron. Throughout the period of the judges, the ark was at Shiloh. The tabernacle was referred to as the house of God, and even the temple of God there of the ark was. Um, So if you can just see, this is like really blurry. Man, Google Images never does it. Um, Shiloh, okay, is right up here. So as we read our story today, top right corner, that big red arrow, that's where the ark of the covenant has now been for 300 years um, as it marched out and was a part of the whole chronicle of time throughout Israel, and that's where we find it. And then, as we're going to find out today, um, not good things are going to happen to the ark and its story. So, for the, I just wanted to give you a backdrop of the importance of the ark of the covenant for this very simple purpose. Okay, to a person living in this time, the ark would have been very important if you were Jewish. Now, they weren't all religious. Okay, um, we often think like, oh, they were just all like all about God. No, it was like our modern society. A lot of them were like. Jewish in name only, or they were just all about the national pride. And so it, the Ark had historical significance, national significance. It was the pride and their identity. Um, we read last week when the Philistines saw that the Ark was coming, what did they do? They were like scared to death. They're like, oh no, the Ark is coming. So there was like uh, national pride. Then it had a spiritual significance. Worship is personal to us. So to the people of Israel, the Ark was like a, a, an intimate part of their personal worship. And so we see someone living in this time, it would have been, had a spiritual significance. So let's turn to our passage for today. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we have arrived, we've made it. First Samuel chapter 4, and our passage for today is 12 to 22. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh, now you can kind of visualize it on the map. He came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head, which means it was a sign of mourning um, that things weren't going good. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set that so he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. 
He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law and wife of Phineas was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband was dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman of her death, the woman attended her, said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she, said, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. That is a Mother's Day passage. Amen? Some childbearing, okay? Um, some just pure out tragedy, Okay, now you know why John's on vacation and I'm up here preaching, okay? Um, so this is our passage that God has given us this morning, and man, it is a tragic, sad one. It's kind of like literally watching a Shakespeare play, and you've seen it, you've seen it building the whole time, and you come to this moment where it's just absolute devastation. It's the bottom of the bottom, and we see here all in one day what's happened, okay? Israel has had another defeat, which they've been consistently defeated, um, their acting high priest and judge is now dead, and the Ark of the Covenant uh, is taken all in the same day. I could spend a lot of time in this, but to simplify this section, um, sin has consequences. Everyone say that with me. Sin has consequences. Um, if you remember the last message that we did in 1 Samuel 4, uh, I gave this quote by R.C. Sproul, and it says this, um, the dilemma for every human is that God is holy and we are not. Simple. God is holy and we are not. My mom used to use this phrase. I didn't even know it was a verse until I was like 25. She said, Brian, be sure your sin will find you out. Over and over again. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. I hated that phrase um, because I heard it so much. But today I'm thankful for that because it's so important as we, as we even talk about Mother's Day. Um, Moms are the spiritual backbone of teaching truth to children. And we often love to talk about God's love and his faithfulness, don't we? It's, it's great. There's songs about it. It's easy. You just type in YouTube, song about God's love. Everybody dance. Um, but we often forget to talk about your sin will find you out. And not to be some constant like nag, like, don't do that. God's going to find out. But because when you talk about sin, it paves the way for to talk about grace and forgiveness and God's love. You have to start with the fact that your child needs God because of their sinful nature and because the way they were created and the way that mommy's created and daddy's created, we have sinful tendencies that we're going to struggle with our whole lives. But let me tell you something, God's grace is bigger than that. And so we see here the dilemma for every human heart. This whole passage, uh, these last verses, sin has consequences. And I think we need to be reminded about that sometimes as adults. And we see it in, in Eli and his daughter-in-law today. Um, it's just fascinating. I, for sake of time, um, actually, let's do it. Tur turn to uh, 1 Samuel 4.18. Actually, go back to 2. We're already there. Go to 2.29 and 30. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 29 and 30. We had this probably a month back now, this verse. And when you were reading it, it didn't really give full whatever, because we're about to hit this in chapter 4. So here we go. 1 Samuel 2, 29 to 30. Eli's being confronted. His sons are being confronted about the way they're actually worshiping God in the tabernacle. And here's what he says. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. I'll just stop there. You see a, a pattern in Eli's life. I haven't really figured out Eli. Like, honestly, this week I really struggled with this passage because how do you close out the life of Eli? Was he a follower of God? Was he not a follower of God? Will we see him in heaven? Will we not see him in heaven? I can't come to a conclusion because the way that God handled and cursed him and his generations to come points to, man, God was not happy with the, Eli, the way Eli led his people in worship. Like, it was serious to what he was doing. What was he doing in that passage? They were taking the choicest meat, the stuff that was supposed to go to God, and they were like, no, we'll give God the flank steak, and we're taking the filet mignon, okay? And that's what they were doing day in and day out. And they're taking the steak, and they're eating. And isn't it interesting, what, why did Eli ultimately die? Not because he fell, but because of what? He broke his neck because of his weight. Now, I don't know all that's there, but it's interesting, like, your sin will find you out. Um, Eli's ultimate death was not that he fell. Now, when you fall on your 98, your chances of dying are pretty good. But it was the fact that he broke his neck under the weight that he carried. So there was both the physical ramifications of him eating the choicest meat, but there was also God's final judgment saying, you have sinned, and death is going to come upon you and your sons and the generations to follow. It's really tragic. Um, I still haven't figured that out. Uh, our fish pond, when I bought the house three years ago, I thought I was young and dumb, and it had a fish pond and a pool. Never buy a house with a fish pond and a pool. One or the other is cool, okay? So I had this koi pond, and this was this guy's prized possession, okay? He had 22 koi in there, and if you know anything about koi, they're expensive. Guess how many koi are left in three years? Zero, okay? It's about $7,000 in fish, okay? Yes, it's very it's sad on the earthly terms, okay? Um, don't say anything to Braden. He still thinks they're napping, okay? Um, so the other day, I had a fish guy come out, and we had this, like, all last summer, the pond level kept going down, and I kept running the hose all the time. It was annoying. So I had this upper fish um, pond, and then it has a waterfall, waterfall down. Um, so we, like, kind of figured out that if I turn the water off, the water stayed. The problem is then you can't purify it, and your fish die. Um, so what I had to do is I had to have this fish guy come out last, uh, last week, and he looked at, he just stepped in, this guy's good. Steps in, he goes, I see the problem. He goes, it's your, it's your upper waterfall. It's somewhere in that area, but let me tell you something about water, okay? And, and this, he, he said it so, uh, like, so, like, matter of fact. He goes this, he goes, water will always find the spot of least resistance. Find that area of least resistance and your problem is gone. Then he just walked off and left. And I was like, come back, yeah, I need more. Um, and he goes, it's somewhere here or somewhere here. So you know what that began is the long, painstaking process of slowly removing the rocks from the fish pond. Um, my men's group said they were going to help me. They didn't show up. Um, <laughs> yes. So um, uh, I won't give any names. But um, so me and my wife, okay, have been slowly taking rocks out of there a day at a time. And it's so true. That's, I, I can kind of see where it is now. There is this least resistant side where the dirt over time has settled. But isn't that the fact with sin? is sin always finds the path of least resistance every time. And how painful it is to slowly find out where those problems are. And, we, and we're reminded, this is, this is the part that stinks. We're reminded in Luke 8, 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, for, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. 
There's no secrets with God. How many times do we think, ah, oh, it's just a secret sin, nobody will figure that out? Well, we see in the tragedy of Eli that there was somewhere along the way where sin followed the path of least resistance. I don't know where that was. It's easy to be a judgmental person and be like, man, he just failed with his boys. It's interesting when the guy comes and says, here's the ark, that he's not worried about his boys. <laughs> like, he's like, your boys were killed. But when does he get upset is when he finds out the ark was captured. I, this is not, I'm not, I'm, this is just after studying it. So this is not, like, I'm not saying this is what the Bible says. But I really believe that after studying the life of Eli, that the reason that the ark being taken was such a big deal for him was that in that moment, he realized selfishly that his legacy was forever shot. If you watch the pattern of his life, it was all about Eli. When, his son, when, when people confronted him about what his sons were doing in the presence of God, he said he was more worried about his name than actually what the sons were doing in the presence of God. And so I feel that sin, sin is anything that you put on the throne of your heart above God. I feel like for Eli in that moment, God's final judgment, that's what sin does. And then just this extra part, the daughter-in-law, God doesn't name her in verses 19 to 22, but you just see, if we can just do a takeaway here, the human heart without God is hopeless. If things were sad, they get more sad in the last three verses here. Um, It's interesting, she's, she's dying and she names her son Ichabod, which glory has departed. She says, God's glory has departed, Israel. She's worried about the power that Israel had to be a great nation is gone. You notice she doesn't actually say anything about God's character or her relationship with God or the fact that God's power is, it's all about Israel and the fact that the ark has been taken. If you look at the language there, and I won't spend a lot of time with it, that's, she's taking kind of a nationalist view that like now Israel has no chance. They're powerless because the ark is gone. So did God go anywhere? Even though the ark was taken, did God go anywhere? No. But if, if you really, this is why this passage is tough, because God's presence was at times right above this ark. But the main priority of it was that it was a covenant between God and man. It wasn't to be worshipped. They kind of turned it into a good luck charm, a relic. that said, hey, this, this is what our good luck charm, and God better work because we have the ark. So their view of God was wrong. So as we end today's message, uh, we see Israel in a desperate place. Um, We're going to see the path of the Ark of the Covenant. But bigger than that, we see God on a small scale is setting the stage for revival in Israel. In the passages that come, the people are going to turn. So he's setting the stage for revival. But on the bigger picture, and that's where I want to end, he's also setting the stage for redemption. Okay? And that's where I want to end our time is that God is setting the stage for the redemption of mankind. So what do I mean by that? Everyone, where's where we're going to close? Turn to, uh, do I have it on the screen? Hebrews 9? I think I do. I wanted us all to see that, these verses. If you can't see that, you can look it up because I want us to like, be able to see the words. But um, go to Hebrews 9. This is just, this is where it gets good. This is where we can make Mother's Day happy again. So Hebrews chapter 9, 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, um, if you were just a person living in this day, 
looking at the Ark of the Covenant, ultimate despair, hopelessness, as we see in this passage. Um, the sister-in-law especially, like just absolute abstract hopelessness. But if we on this side of it stand here, sit here today as Christians, okay, this passage right here is a beautiful theological bridge between the Old Testament and the, the meaning of this and the New Testament and what Christ did for us on the cross. I mean, this is, this is if you're going to go over the bridge, this is the bridge right here. So as God's glory departed Israel in that moment, his glory is actually in the process of being revealed. So the ark was a physical reminder of the covenant between God and Abraham, all right? But Christ is the physical reminder of the new covenant between God and all of mankind. What do we do when we do communion? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. What do we say? We read this verse every time that we do communion. We say, just like Christ did, he said, this cup is the what? New covenant. New covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ, the physical reminder of the new covenant. The ark was a sign of God's faithfulness and presence. Remember we talked about that? His faithfulness and his presence with them. Christ is a living sign of God's faithfulness and presence. Um, Just read Isaiah 53 and tons of other um, prophecies in the Old Testament. When Christ came, it was, all right, God is faithful. He's here. It had gone dark. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Israel was a wandering, defeated nation. On steps, this guy named John the Baptist who starts talking about this guy named Jesus, and we see the rest. This is cool. Uh, the ark served as a mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and all men. First Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, For there is one God and one what? mediator between God and men, and that is Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. The ark served, lastly, whenever they saw this, okay, like think about if you were behind it, crossing the Jordan River, you're walking out, and you're reminded that like the ark, okay, if we don't have God's presence with us, like we have no chance of victory. It was a picture of God's, their need for salvation, okay? But Christ and the cross, okay, kick this out of the way, New Testament, don't kick it. It's the ark. Um, the cross, the New Testament, man, what a beautiful picture and a daily reminder of our need for a savior, our need for salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's how we, as we end this and uh, we read the, the tragedy that takes place at the end of 1 Samuel 4, we realize that Israel is hopeless at this point. Um, God has distanced himself. He's going to let them reap the repercussions of sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. But here's the hope for today, okay? Take this with you if you forget anything else. We have to rejoice as believers because we're in the same plight as Eli if it's not for the cross. We're in the same plight as that unnamed woman who is only in Scripture for a short time just to give birth and then die so that she names her child Ichabod, the glory has departed. That's, that's you and me without the cross, without Christ as the mediator. That right there, that's worth rejoicing in today. It's powerful. That's what it's all about. Just as the sacrifices were partial atonement, temporary atonement, the cross and Christ was permanent atonement. That as we walk in here week in and week out, that's what we rejoice about. That's what we celebrate. And that's what carries us through whatever a day, week, or month looks like. Let's pray. 
Father God, we love you. We thank you that your word is alive, active. And even when we come to these passages, Father, that are challenging, and we ask questions like, why did you put that in there, God? Like, look at the pain and misery. We have enough of that in our world today, God. We're reminded that your plan is perfect and it's being completed. And so we thank you for the message of this passage today, God. I thank you that we truly, as believers, God, when God looks down at us, he sees you and he sees us fully covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, God, fully atoned for so that we don't have to live in this constant state of of wondering where you are. And we thank you, God, that Christ was the mediator between God and man. May we celebrate and rejoice in that today. In your name we pray, amen.